Gaming and BS episode 278 being recorded Sunday, January 26th, 2020. Welcome to Gaming and BS, a tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. I'm Brett. Welcome to the show, folks. Welcome back. Glad everybody's here. So, we, Sean, yes. Sean, we, you know, we had to, we're going to talk about astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea today, as promised. And astonishing, astonishing swords and sorcerers, sorcerers and sorcerers of Hyperborea. And because I don't want to put up with that shit, we brought in Tim DeShane to uh, help us talk <laughs> to talk talk more meaningfully about about something I'm really fond of. Tim DeShane. <laughs> if Sean acts up too much, I'll threaten his life. See, and that's why you're here. He's gotten numb to my threats. He's like, whatever, Brett. I can't you know? think of another person I'd rather have me tie in a knot than Tim DeShane. You know, I was just thinking that I would love to have Brett and I just like fight the entirety entirety of a convention and just see how many people we could take out at once. I think that would make a great movie. <laughs> Chop Saki movie. Actually, what we kind of what I was actually I was thinking about this that at some point during like GaryCon, we should like creep up on each other and just like like tackle each other on the floor just to see if they call security on us. Scare the hell out of everybody. <laughs> what the fuck is going on? I'll be over there tapping out because Tim's got me in some fucked up arm bar. All right. Yeah, man. So we're just going to do the show regular. And then when Tim get when we get to the main topic, Tim yeah. is going to show us the ropes. So no announcements, nothing too heavy. Let's just do random encounter and bust through this stuff, man. I did game this weekend. Did you? I'm so used to you not. Dude, I'm so used to not actually partaking. There isn't a big an announcement necessarily, but Jeff, it was in freaking prime form, dude. Was he? His decibel level. He was out of control, man. <laughs> Playing his paladin, killing whites. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Over the top? I can't even. It's not even. Even if I recorded it in audio, it would do no justice. He's an intense. He's intense when he's there, and he's loud. He's shaking. He's Tim, red. Jeff is a buddy of mine. I've known him for forty some years. He will like when it's his turn to go, and he can never add. Okay, like math, he's too. He's too. He's too intense. He doesn't have time for that shit. He, he, there was actually a point where he's like, "Okay, sixteen. That's sixteen normal damage. All right, irresistible." <laughs> and he's like. <laughs> and whips the dice against my DM screen. Then he he's counting again. He's like, "All right, twenty-five. I go, "So twenty-five total? No, twenty-five plus the first number I gave you. What was the first number you gave me? I don't know. I forgot." I'm like, Jeff, it is your job to add up your shit, and it's my job to add up my shit. Oh, I know. And then one of the guys is like, why don't you roll your damage into hit, like, kind of all together? And he's like, no, he can't. Can't do that. Too much. Too much math. Too much. Too many so, moving parts. So at the end of the game, Jeff says, all right, Sean, so are we going to level up? And I go, Jeff, you guys just took on a swarm, which is like a half CR, your ninth, tenth level. Your tenth level, I sent six swarms after you that they're a half CR. Half. And you want to level up? Like, that's what you want. Like, that's, you want... Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, uh, yeah, I want to I level up. I said, Jeff, you can't play the character for the level that he is at. You want me to give you another level to confuse <laughs> the shit out of you even more. 
That's just more math, Jeff. Don't do it. Don't do it, Jeff. It's just more math. Now, in Jeff's defense, he said that the reason he wasn't playing his character properly before mm-hmm. and he didn't know the rules is actually he was nerfing himself. So what he wasn't playing the other way. Like well, he he's, he's so talented that he was per- I mean, handicapping himself to give other people a chance to shine. I like that about Jeff. He's a giver. Dude, That's good. Yeah, that's a good role player right a there, A damn man. good role I'm, player. I guarantee, man, if I could get a streaming stream with Jeff in it, like my home group, we would be critical role in views. No question. <laughs> because people would show up and go, I got to see this, <laughs> this fucking guy play every week. Like, it isn't a little mellow and like, you know, in role play because he, he just doesn't do funny voices or anything. But that guy is insane. Well, he's just intense. Like, overly Totally intense. intense. That's awesome. Anyways, I just had to say that. <laughs> That's very cool. That is awesome. But it, it does, this, my conveying of Jeff does no justice at all. Like, everybody's just kind of like, I don't get it. Dude, I'm it's crazy. You. I have a Jeff, too. Does that Do you? Ha- it, yes. And his yes. name's Jeff. And he, yes. Shut up. Is he your Jeff, yeah. too? Yes. Same same guy, same we personality. We get these guys at the same table, man, and then just the freaking world explodes. Yeah, Jeff um, is, he's something else. <laughs> That's pretty much all I can say with the time that we have allotted. <laughs> Maybe oh one God. day. Oh, you you can meet him at GaryCon. He comes to GaryCon with me every year. Oh, perfect. But he's we, a, I've had to have met him before then, I'm guessing. Yeah, he's definitely a, oh, man. I love it. <laughs> and right, we, two, we two have been playing together since we were 13 or so, 14 yeah. or something. Yeah. Same thing, yeah. That's some, that's. I know it's cliche, but I love those those groups like that. I mean, my group and I have been together for almost 30 years. You start looking back like, wow, I've known that guy since I was 13. And you check your age, you're like, holy shit, <laughs> I've been around forever. <laughs> I'm middle-aged. How did this happen? <laughs> Fuck me. This sucks. Yeah, I ran into one of my, uh, at Evercon, uh, Troy Ugritz is one of my first martial arts instructors. He knew me. He was introduced him to my wife, and he's a he's a big gamer. And he he's there. He's hanging out, and Susan says, how long, Troy, how long have you known Brett? He goes, I knew Brett when he was short and fat. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's true. I was shorter and a little, a little heavier. He goes, oh, yeah, you're a butterball. You're not a butterball now. I'm like, hey, come on, old man. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but, yeah, I've known, I've known him since I was 13. I'm like, holy crap, that's forever ago, man. Anyway, shall we, sh- Sean? Let's yeah, move it's random encounter. Random encounter. Here we go. You got to read the first one. All right, random encounter. Emails, voicemails, comments from social media forums. Uh, first one. Ty writes in via email. No railroading. This is subject line. So this is this is why I'm having Sean read this because obviously not to him. Yeah, no, I will not be able to probably yeah, he, relate no. to this. He's no idea what this is. I got a question for you guys. I have a group of new players, but I'm trying to not. I'm trying not to railroad the group. I'm hoping to show them the freedom they can have in this RPG. But they've come on to a situation where they made a decision, which I feel is, which could cause ATPK. How do you guide the players to not make a foobar without telling them they need to do something different than they are doing right now? I'm not sure if I just did not explain all the possibilities well enough or they thought, what the hell Let's go for it. Well, I'll tell you, man, when it, when it's new players, there is, I think sometimes you get, do you need to put them in the, uh, you know, the dining car, get them on the rails a little bit and help them along. And they've, you know, they can pull the track switch if we want to use that analogy to maybe go different places. But at a certain, I think it helps to give them some kind of, some kind of guides. Now, 
my experience, depending on the age of the players and how mature they are with dealing with failing, you know, if you're playing with a bunch of grade schoolers or people that don't like to lose in any way, or I, I don't know these people, but sometimes people will get a little annoyed if they do actually TPK. You're like, oh, you didn't bother to warn me. I'm new at this game. Oh, my God. You know, so it might not be bad. It's not Deus Ex Machina type of thing where you go down and you swoop in and save them. But it might not be bad to say, all right, just so you know, here's the situation. And you can do it from the character's point of view, saying you're a fighter and fighter. Um, there's 100 hobgoblins and uh, you know that's a bad tactical decision type of thing. You could potentially give them the idea, but give it to them as if their characters would know it. And that would help perhaps drive them to like you're not saving them. You're giving them info that their characters would know, but they as players don't know. Tim, what would you do? So my whole thing against railroading is more in the the choices in which they want the adventure to go. Okay. Right. So, and in that case, if they didn't know where to go, and maybe I would give them a, a nudge in one direction or another. But if it comes down to like, you kind of give them the warnings and they decide to fight the thing anyway, I'd probably, I don't think I'd TPK them, especially a new group, but I would definitely kick the crap out of them and make it a learning experience. Um, so, like, if they got four people, take two down to zero and let them drag them out of the room type of thing? Yeah. This whole, this group of uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers who just started playing that I'm running for, um, they decided to like, attack some things that maybe are above their their party ability. And I've even had the whole, like, take them prisoner. You know, my bad guys aren't always, fight, like, fighting to kill them. You know, they see the the value in having hostages or things of that nature. So, but yeah, definitely, like, I give them the opportunity, like, our current 5e campaign, I seeded, I think, every single Watsi published adventure right now and let them decide which way they wanted to go. Oh, cool. Um, and they decided to kind of bite on the Salt Marsh storyline. Okay. And right now they're fighting the people on the ghost, all the pirates and stuff and the lizard men, and they got the, the crap kicked out of them. And we ended on a cliffhanger with, like, half the party down. Um, and... I'm definitely not like looking to to TPK them, especially it's hard in five B. They're going to get death saves, and if they get death, if they're all down, I'm probably going to have the bad guys stabilize them and just take them prisoner. Um, I like that idea because then it's not you're not saving their ass completely. Like, okay, you made this decision, and then whap whap whap. Now you guys can run away if you want to. Yeah, you know, and that, sometimes that reminder in the middle of the fight, like you all don't have to stay here. And if the bad guy takes down the cleric. And then a couple of lizardmen come out and scoop them up and start walking away with them. Like, okay. Oh, wait. Oh, shit. That's bad. Ah, oh, crap. Prisoner time. I'll, I like that option. And not having every, not every fights to the death on either side. Yep. The bad guy might be like, no, no, they have information. I want to find out what they know, why they're here, because they may foil my plans or something. I like that. That's a good, that's a good move. I'm wondering if Ty has a player in that group that's wiser than the rest or is, ah, uh, you know, on the fence, then I would slip that player a note and say, you know, if you go down this road, it's going to be a bloodbath. No question. Now, again, as a player or a character? No, I, would tell, I would tell the player, the player character <clears throat> knows in their brain that if they choose that route, it is going to be doom. Like, I wouldn't do that for any other combat unless I knew that they were going down towards a TPK. Because I think sometimes you're going to know, we're going down a route that's going to be a, a shit show. And so they could still do it. They could have the one play, player character be the conscious and you can convey it through their avatar in the game. 
And then when shit hits the fan, it's not like that person didn't tell them. True. Assuming okay. they, they're willing to do that. Or there is even a person that's like not, yeah, let's all go, yeah, right. Oh, no. And then it's one of those cases where, too, if you do that type of thing and the player's like, you know what? Fuck it. We're rolling the dice, man. We could win or we could go out in the blaze of glory. Blaze of glory! And they, and they want to do it. All right. They, you basically, I gave Tim. Tim, you have permission. Whack us all. All right, guys. In you go. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Uh, you know, turn the handle out comes the meat. So there you go. Yeah, you don't, you don't. Now, one thing about what Ty mentions, too, is you don't know it's going to be a TPK. Right? You're just assuming that the odds are way against the party. You only know it's a TPK until it's done. <laughs> right, so you're kind of putting the because, cart before the horse, right? Because if you've got dice like Sean or I, you oh, could shit. you could run super freaking cold. And as a game master, you could you know the other way to do it is you could you could always fudge dice if you wanted to. But even if you're playing straight to the numbers, if you've got if you're cold, I've had I think all three of us have had that where your game master you're like I can't hit the the players for anything. My bad guys might as well have I might as well just phone this in. Could have just gave you all experience points and told you to level up, and why waste the hour? I, I roll always in the open, which is mostly to my detriment, um, <laughs> uh, more often than not. Um, and I think that a lot of times, you know, there are one, there are fates worse than death and failure is just as interesting as success. So yeah. a lot of times like DMs and GMs want to coddle their players and kind of let them always win the fight. But that's not always interesting. Sometimes losing the fight and like kind of licking your wounds and coming back, you know, like I am vehemently against railroading when it comes to letting them make the decision of where they want to go. But once they make that decision, the consequences are theirs, you know? Yeah. And if you said with a new, with a new party, if you, if there's four players in it, you beat the ever living shit of them. There's like one and a half characters left standing at the end of this fight. Like, Oh, oh that was close. <laughs> Chances are they're not going to be quite as gung ho next time because that will be a fresh memory in their minds for the next turn. Yes. Cool. Good stuff. Thank you, Ty. I hope we answered that one. If not, or if anybody else has a better slash different idea, let us know. Yeah, let us know if you TPK him, Ty. Yeah, and if you do, we'll we'll, we'll give you a button. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I don't have a TPK button. We got to make one. Anyway, Laramie comments on the Sean encounter. Uh, first, I think you did a great job, Sean. Better than I would have. And of course, having said that, here come my comments. As far as tracking which monsters have how many HPs, if it's a flurried or hurried combat, I do tend to let them be random unless someone makes a point of focusing fire um, we're talking about who gets hit both ways from the monster attacks and the party ones in my experience it keeps people from getting too bogged down just swing and go also if you feel a combat is going one way or the other you can spread the damage or focus it instead of random to help the flow of the game i'm not going to fudge die rolls but i think this can help one side being cleanly wiped but i think your overall straight up nailed it that encounter would <laughs> was built to suck hit points and it did so, Tim, I don't know if you listened to this one, but there's a Sean had this encounter in um, a Tomb of Annihilation. It's this wacky ass maze slash undead minotaurs come out of the woodwork and start wailing the crap out of the party. And this kind of goes into Ty's comment about TPK when we're chatting through, like, okay, even if you're doing theater of the mind and you have like five undead minotaurs charging your party and you're the characters are wailing on undead minotaurs, unless they're telling you sometimes, like, I keep hitting the same one that hit Tim's character. I keep doing this thing to this one. I have a tendency to spread the damage out, uh, like Laramie's talking, or I have in the past um, to kind of keep things smooth for my own bookkeeping. You know, when, you know, okay, you hit, you all happen to hit the same one, it's dead, or whatever the case is, just to kind of keep 
keep the bookkeeping simple. So, huh, Sean, does that make sense to you? What do you thought? What Laramie's laying out there? Yeah, I think the the just pick random bad guys to assign hit points to, unless they genuinely want to hit a specific one. But yeah, I think yeah. you get you're too orderly sometimes as a DM, and I don't think you need to. My players definitely. I don't know if it's just kind of conditioned them to. They usually tell me which one they're attacking. Um, they have a tendency to kind of focus fire on one and try and do like they'll take one out at a time. Um, it's smart. If, if they don't do that, if someone they kind of get whatever, I might just either randomly pick one or be nice to them and be like, well, this one's almost dead, so I'll pick that one, you know, and get rid of it. Uh, it wasn't until I actually played AD&D for the first time and I, I went backwards um, I had started off playing BX and went right to second edition. Never played eight, and I never, I never knew that in AD and D was kind of a rule where like it's just you hit random things. There's no kind of like picking your target, you know. And that kind of blew my mind because my players and I've always done that. Like you, like you kind of try and have a you have tactics of like who you're going to attack and who you're going to wail on first. Yeah, especially you know I know that that's a thing in first ed, but I never played with it. When I finally realized, like, oh yeah, it's supposed to be that's supposed to help simulate the fast, furious kind of crazy ass nature of yeah, fog of war type stuff. Yeah, and there's 17 guys all with swords wailing at each other. Hard to say who hit who first or who gets bumped into whatever. So interesting, good stuff, Army. All right, man, Sean, want to read the next one? Josh, Joshua two twenty poses a question on the forums. So this is a potential future topic. All right, making notes. Do useless player characters exist? Tim, I think the uh, the old man, the grump in me, wants to be like, "No, you could make any character work." But I mean, and it's true. Is it yeah, always little, fun? is you it always go, fun? Little camper, you can is, do it. Is it always fun? No, you know. But I, yeah. I get that. So I'm going to play uh, an 80 year old wizard with two hit points. <laughs> yeah, you have to be a masochist for certain things. Um, <laughs> Like, it, you know, you play the DCC funnel and your character obviously has a high intelligence and a four strength. And like, I'm going to pick the fighter because that's, you know. Right. Because why not? Yeah. yeah. I mean, just to be kind of, yeah, kind of countercultural type thing, like punk rock. Like, yeah, man, I'm the I'm the four strength fighter. <laughs> yeah, middle, baby. middle finger to you guys. <laughs> and that's actually but, one of the reasons why I, we'll, we, I'll let Sean finish reading this in a second. But that's one of the reasons why. I've had friends of mine even hate the 3D6 down the line for stats. Vicky for, did like, that. My Jeff's they, wife did that. This So I killed her like last character, the last session. So she was going to roll it up. And one of the guys was like, hey, roll down the line or roll up 3D46, pick top three. So she did. I said, oh, you do that. I'll give you a point of inspiration. So there are certain games, I think, like also being a big DCC player and a big BX guy, like there are games that 3D6 down the line won't matter as much because the attribute scores don't really matter as much as they do. And like you do that in 5e, you're kind of hardcore because the attribute scores matter a whole bunch. Yeah, because those attribute bonuses, that helps you spot hidden, helps you, you know, steal things, helps you climb, helps you spot search, um, all, all your knowledge rolls, all that shit plays and into I, it. You know, we're gonna. You know, as we're, since we're talking about Hyperborea, and I, I don't do that for my Hyperborea games because a lot of the character classes have prerequisites. Like you need certain ability scores to be them. So, you know, if I'm going to let my players play whatever they want, then they need to be able to have the ability scores to to meet those requirements. Makes sense. All right, Sean, you want to finish reading up? If so, is or, it? The- or, or, or do you want to hang on? 
Do you well, want to? You want to read this one? We or could read it and it? then f- we could we could elaborate later. All right, we'll elaborate later. You read it. Read it. it, read it. If so. Is it the player's fault, GM's fault, or the system's fault? Ooh. No. It's probably the player's fault. Let's, let's just blame the player. I like that. Is is it a player's <laughs> job to build a viable character for a setting? The GM's job to communicate what classes or skills will be relevant and which will not, or modify encounters to fit the characters. The system's job to make sure irrelevant characters... Question. The system's job to make sure irrelevant characters can't be built? A little bit of everything? How often do you think players claim their character is useless actually have viable characters and just aren't playing to their strengths? Or perhaps another player has a game-breaking build and hogs the spotlight. As a game master, I've had players mention to me that they believe their character wasn't good for adventuring. I've resolved it in a few ways. One player fell out because their low perception meant they would miss things their companions caught. I told them that they should visit a doctor next session and gave them glasses. (laughs) That would give them a boost to any checks using sight, which got them what they wanted with an in-game explanation. Another time I had a player that built a tank of a character with high unarmed skills, but felt that he couldn't dish out enough damage because everyone else had guns. Duh, of course guns hit harder than fists. For that player, I just let him respect the character by moving their skill points around. How would you have handled these situations? I'll bet one of you would have just said, tough luck. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that a mystery uh, as a player I built two characters and called Cthulhu, Cthulhu to play through massive Nyarlathotep and felt that both of them were pretty useless even though they were interesting characters one was a British pilot with a storied past and the other was a New York University adjunct professor however due to their being 70 plus skills and have having never played the game by the end of the first act I felt like I missed spent my points at creation on useless skills, namely science ones for the professor like meteorology. I wish either the GM or the book had stepped in and said, listen, unless you're fighting the weather god, don't take this skill because you'll never use it. Should my GM have protested or is Call Cthulhu a bad system with too many skills? Because I know it wasn't my fault I ended up with a use with useless characters. Looking for input from Brett and Sean hmm. on this one. So I'm going to jump at the Call of Cthulhu one right now. <clears throat> In my experience, what I do in any system that has a lot of different skills like that, when a player says, hey, I want to make this character, I'm like, um, okay, you do realize this is Call of Cthulhu and you're not fighting the weather god. Oh, what? Shit. Especially if they've never played before. How do they if, know that? They could well, be. Well, I'm just saying, if they've never played before, I'm like, let me look your character over. Let me lend a hand here because it can be fairly complicated with 70 plus skills. Okay. If it's one of the old guard of my group, I'm like, y'all want to do that? I assume you're taking a challenge on. Yes, Sean. Then you, I would say it's up to you to say, don't take that skill because you're not going to have it. Or or you are, or the vice versa, I should say. Hey, there's a meteorology issue. Somebody better have meteorology. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could do that. But I think it always goes one way, right? But it can. Yeah. I don't know. We could get into it a little bit more. Yeah, Tim, do, yeah, Tim, do you have any, Tim, do you have any thoughts off the top? I get a point here. So I think way back, like the, all of his scenarios have valid, right? Like like it can be the system's fault. It can be the, the GM's fault and the player's fault. There are a lot of times I think people say their player is unplayable, the character is unplayable, and they're really not, right? They're just kind of, they're mad that their character can't do everything. Um, yeah, I've seen that plenty of times. Um, 
but then there are times that, yeah, like maybe you just, maybe you didn't listen to the GM or the GM was, was, uh, uh, delinquent in telling you what the kind of focus of the, of the game is. So like, if you want to play a meteorologist, it's because you really wanted to play one. Right. And then <laughs> you can't be upset that your meteorology isn't helping in the adventure or the G or the, or your GM was just a kind of a, was an ass and didn't say, dude, this guy's <laughs> going to be like, you're doing this for the role-playing reasons. Like you're not going to be able to really, your skills are not going to apply to what we're doing. It's the classic, um, like Sea King's Malice by Alex Cameron. Like, oh, Sea King, oceans, water, boats. None of y'all took swimming. Really? I fucking told you at the beginning, this is a, oh, your entire thing is a land-based druid. Um, you sure about that type of thing? Yeah. A little bit of blame all around potentially there. Yeah. Hmm. The one thing I've tried to do, and I think I got this more from when I started to read Blades in the Dark and, 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 and ran that a couple of times was that let the players tell you how they're tackling a situation. So instead of giving them like roll this, you know, if they have a multitude of skills that might be able to, to help in a situation, they can kind of tell you how they're doing it. And if it makes sense, they're not reaching too far. You know, they can pick whatever skill that you might not think is, you know, something that can work in the situation, but it does because of the explanation, they get to roll that instead. That's um, a good idea. I actually do something similar when I'm, when I run Avalon with five E, if, my example has always been if you run down a corridor, you're chasing a thief, you run down an alleyway, and he's gone. And you're like, well, I guess I could try search. I'm like, well, what are you doing? What are you trying to find out? Well, I don't know if you climb the wall. You have expertise in climbing or acrobatics because look at your character sheet. I'm proficient in this. Okay. You could use your, you know, acrobatics to see did the dude parkour up this wall here? Oh, I could do yeah, absolutely. You could use that to help investigate. You could use that potentially to pull stuff together where somebody has no idea would have to rely on a raw perception check where you have proficiency in a thing. So I'll give you advantage or something along sure. those lines, but letting them play to that character who doesn't have a really good perception because he doesn't have really high wisdom or whatever, but he's, you know, whiz bang, you know, climber or athletic dude. He or she walks up there and she's like, Oh yeah, I can see the chalk marks over here. I can see where they stepped on this. They disturbed that windowsill. Ah, they climbed the wall. Off we go. So similar type of thing. I, I like doing that more and more. I think even with a game like Call of Cthulhu, a huge list of skills, getting the players to tell you using that type of wisdom, saying, hey, tell me what it is you're trying to do. How are you trying to use the skills that you're good at to figure this out? I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I've run Tomb of Annihilation, man, these guys are like, all right, I look, ar I, I look around. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, I actually have to. I have to actually ask them, "What are you trying to achieve? Like, why what you're ask, why what you're saying? What are you hoping to find, or or what are you trying to achieve?" And then they go, "Well, I'm trying to determine X." Oh, okay. Then I understand. Give me an Arcana roll. Give yeah, me this roll. But man, it is so like high hundred foot level. Sometimes it's like, come on, you yeah. got to come down to earth a bit. I think there's like a thing with modern game design that makes people, even who've been playing for a long time, look at their character sheet for the answer, right? Or they want, they're like, I, I look around, that means I get to roll something and that's going to expose whether, rather than being like, no, immerse yourself in what's happening in the game, describe to live, like, what do you look at? And if you describe it well enough, I'm not even going to make you make a roll, right? Like you just, if you look behind where the secret door is, well, then your, your character finds it. Yeah, in a game with, uh, I, if I look at like 5e, I'm like, oh, you have proficiency in that? I'll just give it to you. Yeah. You're you're totally proficient in, you know, athletics. Yeah, you can see where the guy climbed the wall. 
you, you don't need to check. You're you're the god queen of um of acrobatics. Why would she not know how to do that? Obviously, someone climbed the wall. Yeah, I like it. Good stuff. Brett, you got the next one? Yes, I do. Spook408 on the forums wants to know about rules that encourage role-playing. Good God, we got some interesting stuff here. Uh, what's the best rule mechanic to encourage role-playing? As I posted on another thread, I wanted to play the Genesis system to see how their narrative dice system works. Champions has ideas like disadvantages. Fate has aspects. Then there are all the Bennies, inspirations, fate points sort of encouragements. Certain settings do this with tailored rules. The Bond game had the seduction skill broken up by steps like the look, opening line, etc. That's all I can about all I can come up with, but there must be some more, right? Holy shit, dude. There are... Okay, so let me just comment here because first of all, Brett read that and it has nothing to do with Brett. Okay, because Brett doesn't need rules for any of this stuff. Nothing. He doesn't need any rules for role play. Right, Brett? Of course not. Right. So I'll have to get somebody else for that show and that topic. Because <laughs> nice. Brett will be just like well, Genesis, uh, you roll dice and have like uh, a pass fail plus a an advantage disadvantage kind of thing. But I could always do that in, in my games. Like, nor I could just do that normally. I don't need. I've rule. said this before. Yes, you have. Is that depending who you're gaming with, some people are like oh they just they, certain gamers do certain things naturally, other gamers do not. Most people who design a game or setting are not playing for people who do shit naturally anymore, because I need a system. That's going to inform play so that people play it, quote unquote, right, or that it fits a certain flow or style or whatever. I get that. Um, I will, as Sean's, <laughs> he's laughing at me now, <laughs> but totally. I There's certain points, points if I was playing and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll play my character and I'll just role play my way through it. I don't miss. And someone goes, oh, you get a Benny for that. I'm like, oh, what, whatever. Uh, neat, I guess. <laughs> I get an inspiration for playing my character. Neat, I guess. It's just a thing you do. But you get newer players coming in. Tim's talking about these younger kids he's playing with and so forth. How do you encourage them to do that? You're handing out inspiration. You give out advantage. Um, if you have bennies and so forth. I totally get where that Pavlovian, I did a thing, clink, I get a reward for it, helps to encourage that. I think it makes, there's some sense to that. Do I need it for certain groups I run for? Nah. But I can definitely see where it's handy for people to have. Tim, what do you think? I think a lot of people have, or everyone has a different play style, and you can never force someone to be a good role player. Or what? Or, or, yes, or, you. Yes, you no. can. Yes, yes, you can, Tim. Absolutely not. You can't. Damn it! I, I think a lot of these these systems that encourage "quote unquote" encourage role playing are more punitive to people who are never going to be Ooh. that person. So you end up you end up kind of like rewarding the people who sometimes I want them to shut up anyway. Like, I don't want to hear their soliloquy and their funny Scottish dwarf voice anymore. <laughs> um, whereas the person who just kind of wants to figure out puzzles and maybe roll some dice and fight stuff are being kind of left behind because that's what they're getting out of the game. Um, like with my young group, I think they have learned a little bit just by watching when I DM like, yeah, man, I'm like totally into this and I'm going to like do stupid voices or every NPC is going to have a different personality and it encourages them to bring up personality for their characters. But I think sometimes like rewarding it in game can like backfire somewhat. I don't know. Like I just, I've never seen a system that I really think is great. You know, what's interesting too, is that, I mean, to really attack that is like, what sounds kind of kind of pedantic, but like, what do we mean by role-playing, right? Do we mean role-playing as in you're taking on a role and acting or speaking in a voice or speaking as character, or do you mean behaving as your character would? Because there are plenty yeah. of people 
who are really good role players that are third person narrative. Ragnar the fighter, my character does this. Why is he doing that? Well, his family was killed by orcs. He sees these orcs. Therefore, he knows a lot about them. And that's why he's doing this behavior right now. And some people would say that's really good role playing. Here's an you could potentially say here's an inspiration point. Here's here's a Benny for you, too. Yeah. But I think a lot of times what you're saying, Tim, it makes sense to me because a lot of people like, oh, role playing means all the stuff you just defined. And then the person who's really quiet narrates in third person doesn't feel that they're as gregarious. They're not like, oh, my God, I'm not doing all the cool actor stuff. So therefore, I'm getting punished. So. I, I kind of want to go back at Spook 408 and say, okay, what, how would you do, what do you, what type of role playing you're trying to get? You're trying to get just to get people to do what we said. How are you trying to accomplish a thing? Because that person is really quiet, says, well, what I'm trying to do is determine if somebody climbed up the alleyway. I'm trying to figure out if this alchemist used Quicksilver, you know, and I'm trying to do that by looking at all their Alembics, uh, uh, Alembics, excuse me, and the, the different mortars and pestles and so forth. Oh, says Tim, boom, you got, you got something going there. And that person may not be like in your face, classic bard charisma face man type of dude, but you know, she may be rocking it that other way. So I don't know. I think the uh, one thing about this one is when you talk about Genesis system and then you talk about the bond game with the seduction skill or there, I think there's two different things at play here. You have the mechanic resolution. Okay. Whatever that is. And the mechanic resolution for a majority of traditional games usually is around a combat kind of thing. So D&D doesn't have a great, it hasn't never had a really great social mechanic. And with the social mechanic, I think that comes into role playing because nobody really role plays combat. I mean, some do, some would say I make quips while I'm beating up people or whatever. That's my role playing. But really you're just, you get so pulled out of the game. You roll your initiative, you tell the game master what you're going to do, you roll some dice, you tell them the results, they say, okay, great. The role play of that's going to be less limited than a social interaction-based encounter in general. There's going to be, oh, no, not always. Yeah, well, in general. <laughs> All right, so come on, work with me here. But I, you know, going back to the bond thing or the social piece, that's where I think it's like, because the Genesis system... It's not going to be role-playing. It's still a mechanic. It's still a, does it, do you succeed, do you not succeed? And then there's a fallback or a not a fallback. It's it's not a, I, it's going, it's not going to allow me to role-play better or not. Like, even though it's somewhat narrative, it's, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Am I? Yeah, I think the Genesis system, because it's like the Star Wars game that you ran for me, Sean, it will help potentially narrate yes. better, but not yes. necessarily role play better. Correct. Tim, are you, do you agree with what Sean and I are saying? Or do you think we're fucking crazy or what are you thinking? So last night we played um, Eric Bloat's Blackest of Deaths, you know, which is a kind of old school um, D&D hack and it has a, a die mechanic that has the kind of a narrative die it's kind of like you, you just roll a D6 with any of your checks. And if the, the D6 comes up with a one, you might succeed or fail worse. And then it comes up with a six, you either fail better or... And it's up to the player character to narrate or the player to narrate what their character is doing. Okay, and, a little and, narrative aid. Yeah, yeah, and some people have a really easy time with that. You know, come up with really cool, interesting things that aren't always the same thing. And then some people are just not... They're going to have to kind of fall back on their... I think it's maybe... It's a muscle, man. You just have to, like, practice it and... I mean, there are times that 
I mean, I remember when I was first starting gaming, I wasn't a great role player by any means. Um, I was not either. I was a murder hobo, man. I just wanted to kill stuff and like, you know, just get loot and make my character powerful. And yeah, we were like know. thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we did when back then. Like, yeah, and I don't think it was thousand gold I, pieces. I put them in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, and we learned to be good role players even in D anD D. Like, even though like second edition, didn't, it doesn't have narrative or, or social mechanics it only has rules to, to ad, adjudicate fights pretty much um but we would get into our characters man and like our, and it was it sucked when they died we didn't have the whole like there's no plot armor yeah but, yeah exactly <laughs> but you know your character lived and like you just really get it and i agree with what brett like just playing your character and immersing yourself in what what would my character do and not in that jerk way of like, I'm going to be mean to your character because that's what my character would do type stuff. Um, um, but like, how would my character react in the situation? And let me, even though maybe I don't think this is the best thing, that's why I love playing paladins because I'm not, I am not that black and white, but I love navigating the moral like maze of being, trying to have that ethos, you know? Um, while also not being a, a dick to all the other players and their characters. <laughs> I, I would say I do play a good paladin because I do not, I don't take it out in the party. That's um, good. You don't, um, the party thief does not get 50 lashes every evening yes. just to just to make you feel better. But yeah, I mean, I think it's something, everything can be learned. I don't know if mechanics can ever force it. I just think it's just something that you can just, you just have to do more and more and more and more. You know, the, I love what you're saying there, Tim, because um, Matt Colville said this and other people said it too. Thanks, Sean. I've said repeatedly, you've got to play more to get better at it. So you practice jujitsu. I practice uh, taekwondo. I've done aikido for for five six years. You have to continue to do the thing to be good at it. This is all a perishable skill. You have to. People that I know who do stage stage acting or voice acting or any type of thing, you have to continue to do it to get better and better and better. And sometimes you you're doing something you're in a comfort zone, like you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a druid. Never played this before. I'm I'm going in. I'm gonna play a druid. You know what I've never done? I've never played a Jedi before. Fuck it. I'm a Jedi tonight. That's that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna dive in and try this thing. And you could totally suck. And you know, it, it's it's a safe environment if you're playing with good people and you know, oh shit, I didn't play my thief right. Ah, oh, I didn't play the you know, the horrible gangster dude just perfect or whatever. But you've got to practice this stuff. And I think if and I'm not saying anybody's saying this out there, but if you look at a mechanic and say, oh, this will encourage role-playing, or this is, you know, better role-playing in five easy steps. I don't think you can, I don't think there's a really good shortcut to it. There's not a lot, there's, certain games may sing to you as a player or a game master better and may help you come along. Believe it or not, the original Vampire the Masquerade was like this breakout game for my gaming because of whatever reason, it like really grabbed me and I was in. And I got better at role-playing and defining plots and all this really cool shit. I don't even, I still to this day don't necessarily know what magic was in that weird ass book, but it just, it caught me. If you find a thing you're like, oh, it's obviously these rules or whatever. I don't know, man, because if it was, everybody doing it, it's, it's so subjective. And I think you're right, Tim. I can't say this mechanic, boom, you implement this fucker and everybody's going to be a rock star role player at your table. I don't think that such a thing exists. Got to practice. All right. Shall we? Yeah, thanks everybody for writing in, commenting. Appreciate it. Uh, let's get into the main topic where Tim can talk more. I think I've talked a whole bunch. I need to talk more, man. <laughs> Just imagine now I get to sit back and not say anything. This is the best part because Sean's gonna stop talking. 
<laughs> so <laughs> we're talking about ouch. We're talking about astonishing swordsman sorcerer of Hyperborea. I brought this up on the show a few times. How I like the setting. I like the system. Sean can't stand it because of his descending armor class. It does? I um, don't even know that. So I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, you did. I've told well, you that before. Well, you I, just have you have a mental block on descending armor class. Look, man, I can't remember jack shit. I'm my wife thinks <laughs> I got early Alzheimer's, so there. It's a medical condition, Brett. <laughs> now your wife says you don't listen to some other stuff she was talking about. Anyways, <laughs> ascending, descending armor class, that's whatever. But anyway. I have yet to get the game to the table. I've read the rules a number of times. I've read like Rats on the Walls. The um, oh shoot, there's one, um, the one serpent, um, out in the de- and uh, there's uh, there's one with a serpent that like this big lizard that cries gems and shit. Oh yeah, the um, I can't remember. Oh, the charnel something. Yeah, charnel serpent. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. remember. Somebody, somebody shelf over there. Anyway, there's some really cool adventures. I've read through it. It has wonderful OSR feel. But Tim has actually played the damn thing and loves this setting and the system and so forth. So I want to get in somebody here. So it's not like, oh, Brett says this sounds really cool, but he's never done it. So, Tim, if I were to say, you know, Astonishing Swordsman Sorcerer's Hyperborea, what is it? Do you have, is there a pitch that you tell people when someone goes, what the fuck is that game? Do you have an elevator pitch of your own? If you don't, you don't. That's fine. I'm just yeah, kinda I kind of do. Well, the first thing I tell people is it's my favorite version of D&D. Um, oh, nice. it, because at its core, it is still D&D. Um, yes. It, which which version? version? Yeah. yeah. So it's a good, it's an amalgam between, or there's a lot of it that reminds me of second edition, actually, which is like the one I played the most, right? And it reminds me of second edition because it has the AD&D roots, but it, it's better organized, right? So that's where, it's, where it's at, that's where 2E comes in. Um, but there's also a lot of BX in it. Um, so it's got a, like a, it's kind of like a, like a, almost like a best of early D&D stuff with Jeff's own uh, Jeff Tillian's kind of like, I think it's mostly his house rules, things that he liked to do that ended up making sense and just being good design. Um, so it's a, a human-centric sword and sorcery, uh, kind of weird tales version of D&D, not high fantasy, not Tolkien style, more more uh, Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Lovecraft, in a D&D kind of uh, milieu. I've told people like it's, when I say it's like Robert E. Howard Conan, they say, oh, that's regular D&D. Like, no, 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 hang on. That, you haven't read the books. Um, so have you read Lovecraft or uh, Clark Ashton Smith? Like, oh, kind of. And then there's a phrase, I, th- I think it's still in the the intro, one of the uh, folks who did a uh, introduction to it. They call it, instead of Dungeons and Dragons, it's Dungeons and Elder Things. Yeah. Because you have Mego from uh, from the Lovecraft mythology. The whole Cthulhu mythos is involved in it. And I think one of the interesting pieces, as you said, it's it's human centric in that there's different versions of human. But if you say, "Oh, I like playing elves," mm, no. Oh, I really want to be a halfling. No. The cool thing about the game is, though, you can use it. I've used it just to run regular style D and D. Like my first time, I actually ran Hyperborea. I don't think I ran like a Hyperborea centric game. I ran Barrow Maze, and just use the Hyperborea rules because I like the way. They're presented. They're they're just really tight, and the character classes are interesting. Um, they're kind of like you know, if I can make the perfect fighter, how would I make it? Or if I can make a thief the way I really wanted to make it, and that's kind of what Jeff's done. Um, so even the core four classes of like the cleric, mage, the wizard, you know, thief and fighter are really really the best versions of them. I think from what looked to be like an early D and D set. They're really good. And the other thing that, that Jeff Delaney and the author did to it that I really liked was the subclasses. 
your ranger, your barbarian, your druid, your necromancer, you know, as he breaks that stuff out, they're all, I feel like they're, when I read that, like first edition AD&D, like the thief acrobat in our, on Earth Arcana felt like this kind of wonky ass add-on. Never even liked the assassin from first edition AD&D because it just, it didn't feel right. Yeah. But this, every one of these, they all, they, from your perspective, to use your words, I think they're really tight. Yeah. You know, I, I think they all make sense and there's not, from a niche protection perspective, like if you're the barbarian and someone else is the ranger, you're two distinct enough classes with distinct enough things. You don't feel like there's a lot of bleed. Yeah. And all the, the two, all the character classes have their own um, experience point charts, like old school games. Um, so that kind of helps balance them. Like maybe some character classes are more powerful up front than others. Um, but then those other classes have a faster experience point kind of uh, advancement chart. Or, in the, you know, and then it's kind of like that whole linear fighter, quadratic wizard type thing where, like, the wizard... Actually, I would say, like, the first level wizards in this game, though, are not as bad. If you're the type of person that hates playing an early-on wizard, um, his magician classes are are a little bit more robust because they get extra hit points from their from their familiars and extra spells and things like that. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't have that, oh, my God, I do have two hit point wizard and I get hit by a rock and I'm dead. Yeah. You don't really make that wizard in this game. No, yeah, they uh, they start off still pretty capable, um, and it's just I, I think that he doesn't have a, he's not so preoccupied with balance. Like the, the character classes are pretty, I would say, are balanced, but there are some that are yeah just better than others, and that's why some of the character classes have you know attribute requirements or things of that nature. Like yeah, the, this dude like is he's probably better than being a regular fighter, but you also have to have like all these different requirements to hit. Um, yeah, definitely. You mentioned that in the kind of the preamble in the, <clears throat> as we talked earlier, but with having the different requirements, that is kind of an old school approach, like the first edition touch, where if you don't have the 13 charisma, 12 strength or whatever it is, you should, you're not allowed to be that class. So yeah, that makes sense <clears throat> in that from a balance perspective, you know, trying to, to tweak it. The other thing I think from a balance piece is when you, the creatures, the encounters and so forth, he's not, it doesn't have a CR rating or anything like that. It's like if... That old school approach of sometimes you got to run away, you got to be smart. If you can't figure this out, you got to go. You can get in over your head if you're not careful. There's um, cautious combats make sense. Yes. You know, taking care of stuff. It's not like 10 foot pole every five inches down the dungeon floor. It doesn't feel crazy, crazy that way. But there's you you still need to play smart uh, in that space. And there's no... Um, it's been a while since I've read, but there you don't have a, it's not like all Cthulhu. We have a 60 or 70 different, uh, skills to check against, you know, a class has a power, like a tracking or something along those lines. But yes. Most of the classes have their abilities available at first level. And then they just get better at them. Like old school D and D, like if you're a tracker and you can, you're, you you have your thief skills or whatever. Um, and then any kind of like secondary skills that we see nowadays in the skill bloat games, it's just you had your character has a background that they had before becoming an adventurer. And if it's something that makes sense that your character could do, they probably have a better chance in D6 or D12 to do that thing uh, versus, you know, not having a, a reason why they'd be good at it type, you know. So there aren't really like hard skills to say except for the thief skills. Yep. So we've talked human-centric. It's like Dungeon el Elder things. There's, um, it's, I mean, straight from the Clark Ashton Smith stuff, there's, you know... Um, if you read some of the earlier works that he has, it's kind of the the, the gods, all the yeah. the stuff that's in there. It's like Cthulhu's in there and Sathakwa, which is a big Sathakwa. Yeah. Yep, 
Yeah, big callback to that. Um, the city-state of Cromarium, which is like Cromorium from, from a lot of his stories, um, which is like a kind of like a Lankmarsh, you know, that city, like a little more advanced, but dark and dingy and these guilds running stuff. And um, so no, one, it, of the other, one of the other cool things I thought about when I, when you think about the setting as a whole, it's basically a great big island slash continent at, you know, Hyboria, the Borealis, right? It's the Hyboria. Yeah, Hyperborea. beyond the north wind. Yeah. yeah, beyond the north winds. And that's where this thing is. It's like in this place out of time, out of space. And I've talked to a number of people who played it. And they're like, yeah, I have taken my second edition game and transported the characters there. They went through a portal and they ended up in Hyperborea. They went from a first edition thing. They went through a deal and boom, you ended up here. Yeah. So the set, the he's got a wonderful map. And because it's a finite space. And you don't, you have this really cool, like on the edges of it, you can't get past it because of the magical winds and so forth. You, you, if you're trying to figure out if you were transported there, how the hell do you get back? It could be a whole adventure series, but it's this wonderful, in my opinion, encapsulated space where everything, <clears throat> you don't feel like it's as big as Greyhawk or the Forgotten Realms or some of that huge like countryside. You could, you feel like you could tackle it. Yeah. It feels like it's a digestible setting. I think you also too, like, so he, in the Gazetteer portion of the book, um, which to talk about the book itself, it has like that play. There's a the core book, which has the player's book, the DM's kind of stuff, the monster manual, the Gazetteer thing like that. Um, and then you have just a player's guide, which is much cheaper, soft cover, just has the player facing things. Um, but even in the Gazetteer, there's lots of of empty space for you as a DM to like put stuff in. Um, and then he also has some very wonderfully evocative defined cities or, or places that you can be like, yeah, we're going to adventure here next. Um, and you can kind of make your way around it. You know, if you want to do a pirate game, cool. There's like seas all around. If you want to do, you know, typical dungeon crawling, awesome. There's some, pl- there's plenty of, of that old school weirdness. And it's not DCC gonzo weirdness. I always, when I think of DCC weirdness, sometimes, at least the people I talk to like, oh, it's crazy. It's gonzo. The pe- a lot of people I knew who love the weirdness in DCC crank that fucker to 11. This one does have... Because it's this kind of a dumping ground, the uh, Hyperborea, this land, this encapsulated space beyond the North Wind, it, it's, it, it brings things in. And you have this feeling of like lost ages and stuff has just landed here. So there are ray guns, right? Yeah. So you, There's, I know this is Sean's least favorite thing, but there is a healthy amount of, uh, if you want to, I mean, obviously, Sean, any kind of game, you can just, you can eliminate that stuff if you don't want to put it in your game. But what? there is, but what? there is huh? in, in the baked in setting. There is a healthy amount of sci-fi blended in with your fantasy. Um, so the Atlanteans obviously are lo- like a kind of a lost, dying race that were super scientific before their society fell. So you might find like some Atlantean, you know, laser ray gun or you know, flamethrower or flying car or something like that. Um, uh, and some of the published adventures do have those things in there. You can find them, um, and they're obviously in the core book. But it's not like. It's not Gonzo, and by that I mean it's not so in your face. You feel like if you if you have a tenth level if you have a tenth level fighter and a barbarian, if you don't have a ray gun, you're doing it wrong. You don't have that feeling. It feels like it's this weird, rare thing you uncovered somehow. Like holy fuck, I have this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this it's the blend of like any time that you know, super science and magic are kind of indistinguishable to an early civilization. So, um. Yeah, it's something special to find, but it's not something that you're going to be able to like hold on to forever. Um, you know, they're artifacts and relics of a lost age uh, type thing. 
Now, one of the things that you talked about kind of off the, off the mic share and we had in the notes here, it's, it's a weird tales appendix and is influenced, but not self-referential. What do you, when you say that, Tim, what do you, what do you mean by that? So when you look at, you know, you look at, um, at D and D as the additions went on, they began to reference the earlier edition. So anything that was like lore for elves or lore for dwarves, it built upon what they had said in previous editions. And it's hard to reference those things and kind of got further and further away from the source kind of literature. Well, that makes um, sense. I mean, if you think about Bigby, Mordenkainen, it, it, the, the spells with certain names to them become kind of canon. And then you're referencing, oh, it's Bigby's thing or it's Mordenkainen's whatever. Where's he from? Oh, he's from Greyhawk. And therefore, yeah. 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 And Vecna, it, the names, all that stuff. Yeah. It's one of those things, and it's the same as DCC, where they both, and this is why I love both of the games. Like, it's trying to, you're trying to, asking me like which of my children do i love best um <laughs> but they're two sides of the same coin for me whereas they both uh the, i i you know they're, they're they're love letters to the appendix and into weird tales in and in, in the fiction that really made D what it was to begin with and kind of keeping that sentimentality versus like worrying about like what are the five editions worth of lore that elves follow you know based on D D lore yeah so i mean just from an editions perspective when this um astonishing swordsman first came out as a box set uh, spiral bound books in it um i have two copies of the, of the of those i got one that Corey Wynn was wonderful enough he got me one then he got jeff Tlaine to sign the inside cover which is really cool so that's on my shelf i got another one's been like a, a multiple read through hopefully a play copy someday and then he put out essentially like a second edition. He kickstarted it. Yep. Jeff did. And it's this, it's bigger and heftier than a Dungeon Crawl Classics book. It's actually thicker. Yeah. It's a, it's a meaty fucker. But I'll tell you, man, it's, it's really, it's all in one. You get this book, you're done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a one-stop shop. And I think one of the things that people are surprised at when they maybe go to the booth, they're like, oh, this is kind of pricey. But when you think about the fact that, well, you're getting everything you need to run the game in one volume. Um, and it's good quality. Yeah, it's like it's actually not that expensive when you think of it. Versus, yeah, I mean your your D and D books. If you happen to pay cover price, what are you one hundred fifty dollars in? Yeah, to get the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. I like that. That that is kind of cool. Where it's it's not self referential. It does. It's gazetteer. It's setting is really handy. So you, I, I I shouldn't say really handy, but I love the fact that I can use it in multiple ways. When I when I read it. I'm like, oh, I could I could transport people here, which I think would be kind of a cool way to intro people into it because then everything here is weird and they'll be shocked and disoriented and act accordingly. Then they'll learn about the setting and so forth. You said you've run it with just the system. What is it about the system that makes you think that it's the your favorite version of D&D? So I love, like we were talking about the classes. I think the classes are just really well done, really tight. Um, they're fun to play. I don't think anyone ever feels that they're useless at the table, regardless of what their what class they pick. Um, I like that the race, you know, depending on what race of man you pick, are mostly role playing. That you're not going to get any benefits, you know, for being a Viking versus being like an Amazonian, but it's all just role playing flavor. Um, and the like, just the so some of the advanced stuff, like the advanced combat options. If you choose to use them are fun, instead of just like rolling to hit every time, you can choose to like do different, you know, whether you're shield bashing or um, or doing a shield wall or fighting, doing like, you know, shield and spear type stuff. Um, you can kind of make, you can make a character that kind of fits a certain genre that you, you know, you want to play. 
Um, what else about it that makes me want to play it versus uh, it's just it's easy to run. I really do love the initiative system. It's one of the things that people get freaked out about because um, it's side initiative, but there are two phases. And I think the way I think about it is it's kind of like how AD&D had like, um, remember how like AD&D had, uh, they didn't call them, but they weren't phases, but they were um, segments. Yeah, the segments. It's not as in depth or as hard to to grok as that stuff. Um, so if we're, if we're if we're doing it, how would you? So we would I mean, try, how, how do you do initiative? All right. So let's say you're my player and I'm the DM, and we both roll d6, and you roll for the whole your all your player characters. I'm rolling for the monsters, and let's say I win, right? But my monsters have to run more than what you know half their movement rate or whatever to get to you, and you're standing there with a bow ready. Even though you won or you lost initiative, you could still shoot my dudes with a bow as they're running at you. You know, what I mean? so there are phases. They're like, if you can't finish this in phase one, then the other side gets to do their at phase one action, which would be you standing still and shooting. And for some reason, it freaks people out. They think it's like really way more difficult than it is, but it's not. It's just more than, and it's usually only the first round of combat as like forces are clashing. Um, yeah, because you're at a distance, and either you stay at distance or try to stay in. One side tries to stay in cl- and, and close or just pure close. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah. And it, it allows for a little bit of tactical. Like, I don't, I never really play um, grids with it, but there is a little bit like tactical, like, hey, we're going to make a, let's make a shield wall and, and stab dudes through, you know, the second ranks and use their spears and things like that. Because um, there's, there's weapon length and that kind of stuff. So when so, you're doing this, you're saying you don't often use a grid. It, you find it plays the theater of the mind experience with it, works really well. Yeah, very well. I don't, I don't think I've ever actually used grid with it. Um, the most I'll do is like write down like who's engaged with who and kind of give people rough ideas of where people are on the battlefield. But my group loves uh, Pathfinder because they like the uber tactical, super ass crunchy stuff. And I'm kind of I'm it, like, OK, that's their thing. But one of the, for me, one of the disadvantages for a game, if I look at them, like I, if I can't run a theater of the mind, I want that option to be a good, clean option. And trying to run a super crunchy like Pathfinder 3.0 or 3.5 is almost impossible, in my opinion. It's really I've done it, but it's really tough, and it has to be so hand wavy. I don't like it. It's almost I mean, it's designed for the for the the map, you know, the the, the grid map more than other games are. Um, but with Hyperborea, I think it's more of a instead of a crunchy kind of uh, character building or using your abilities in ways that are, you know, synchronized with other ones. It's more like actual tactical combat. Like, hey, we're in a closed space and I'm gonna make, I'm gonna like make a shield phalanx so the enemy can't get past me and the guys behind me are gonna use their spears to stab things, you know? So kind of like real world, more real world fighting type stuff than, uh, than rules or feats, stuff like that. Makes sense. What with the, so, I don't want. This, I don't think this is a knock on it, but it feels like like a lot of old school games that the skill of the player can be very helpful, right? If you're if you're not if you're like, hey, as we as we bemoaned earlier, I look around, dude, come on, what what exactly you're going for? I think because it's that old school style, you need to say those things like, I look underneath the throne, I slit the cushion, I look under stuff. It this type of game is that type of over explanation some people would say or that detailed explanation getting into the activity really you know chewing the scenery so to say is almost required to really get into it because once you're doing that you're you're in that mode right and i think this game it's got some cool stuff to it 
But to really take advantage of that stuff, it it also, I feel it encourages me. When I read it, I feel like I want to do that stuff. And maybe that's just Jeff's magic with how he's outlining stuff. But it's like, hey, man, describe what it is you want to do. And that's what the you know Game Master's there to help you figure out. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also love reading. The, it brought me back to being a kid again because I've never read a core book as much as I've read this just for fun. You know, it back, is a fun read. It is a good read, actually. Yeah, um, that you know, this and DCC are like my things that I was just like, I will read this core book as as you know for pleasure and leisure, and not just for like preparing for games. Do you find? Um, let's see here. The other thing I, from an old school perspective, with the back to the monsters. Um, let's talk about monsters for a second. So when I said it has me go, so those are like Cthulhu. Uh, Lovecraftian type of stuff. It also has the, you know, the the apes, and I think yeah, does this one have androids too? Does it have robots uh, for potential bad guys? I can't remember. Ro- robots, robots. I, I don't have the core. Actually, I have my core book right here. I can look. But oh, looking up the rules at the table. That's cool. Yeah. That's sweet. Hey, just we're just slowing play down a little bit. Shut up. But uh, I mean, we're talking like great races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they would fall. Cool they would probably fall into the automaton. Automatons, uh, yeah, okay, like kind of golem type things, you know. Um, but I, I love the fact that the critters all. <clears throat> if I wanted to run this and I wanted to run it with 5e, right? If I love the setting, I'm like, yeah, but I want to do it with 5e. I think you would really, if you want to use 5e monsters, you're gonna have to go through and parse, you're gonna have to do a lot of legwork. And I think Telenian did a great job with the creatures in the monster manual, all are evocative and fit, they're, they're wonderfully plucked from all the right pieces and parts of all that weird fiction that he loved that he plugged into here. And I think that's the piece when I read it, even the Gazetteer, where sometimes Gazetteers, I get kind of, you know, glassy-eyed buzzing through them. But this one, I felt like there's so many wonderful homages and pieces pulled directly from all this cool stuff. You're like, oh, oh, I know where that's from. And even if that's not a thing you've done, if you haven't read all that stuff, it just, if it all fits. Yeah. Which I think is, can be really challenging, especially for, you know, I mean, the Main book is like 600 pages. It's it's heavy, but it's broken into chunks, right? So again, Monster Manual Player's Guide, DM's Guide, Guest Tier, all that shit, magic items, all in one book. But all the monsters are wonderfully curated to help whenever you lay that in into a group, it's going to enhance the experience. So you don't have to say, well, it's a red cat, but I had to change it. Oh, shit, it has a power that doesn't really work. Or, oh, I didn't know that wouldn't fit or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It just everything in it is wonderfully aligned with the setting and what he's trying to make you feel when you're playing it. And I yeah. always thought that was pretty cool. And you do have some of your like traditional D&D monsters. Um, there aren't. You're not going to have like goblins and kobolds and uh, hobgoblins, but there are orcs, but they're a little bit different. The orcs in this game are like essentially demonic spawn of the picks. Um, so a little bit different. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you might have like the oozes, things that I think the D and D monsters that are going to fit more in a sword and sorcery genre than you know than picking the high fantasy stuff. Um, and then you got your definitely like Howard Lovecraft Smith influences. When you run this, when you run this, do you tend to run the pre-published Astonishing Swords and Adventures, or do you make your own? How, how are you doing it? I do both. Um, I think it's a lot like how I run a lot of my games is I'll put seeds in of things that I want to do like homebrew or things I've, I've come up with um, and then other published adventures I start I start like bringing in the rumors and hints beforehand so it's not so forced when they go to the next one so I'll, like they might start hearing the things that could possibly be another adventure path 
Um, and I just kind of leave it to them. Um, I think most of the stuff I've done on my own homebrew stuff has been in, in the city state of Cromarium because I think it's fun, you know, and it's, it's really easy to kind of riff on Lankmar and, and just use those as influence. Makes to, sense. Yeah. Yeah, because if you do that, there's enough the adventures that are out there. And the other thing that I like, they remind me, the adventures remind me very much of the DCC stuff. They're not like, they're not a $50 tome. No. If you're like beneath the comet and rats in the walls, they're very, they're very tight and condensed. They feel like those DCC size adventures and old school modules where you can buzz through it. You're like, oh, I got this. Boom. And you can, you can read that in like a day or less and get ready to run that sucker. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, I, th- I think that's an advantage to me because then if you want to see that stuff out there, you can talk about the comet, the rats in the walls, the, you know, the charnel pit. You can lay that stuff out there and almost a West Marches style say, look, wham, there's these potential things out there. Go get it. Yeah. Where are you going and next? See who wants, and see who wants to go grab onto it. Yeah. And I, so the to, to do the comparison with DCC, um, the DCC adventure modules are usually around 10,000 words. Um, and they're kind of designed, you can't play all of them in four hours, but they're almost designed to be like a, a, a one shot that get this adventure done. Um, whereas as the Hyperborea adventures are almost double that in size and they're, the DCC adventures are very linear in a lot of ways. There are sometimes they have like a, a, a corresponding kind of, uh, hex crawl that might go with it. But I would say 99% of the ones for Hyperborea are like, here's the kind of crux of the adventure and here's the dungeon, but here's like the, the set. There'll, there'll be a hex around it of like exploration. And if you want to do like a sandboxy type thing as well. Um, that is true. I'd forgotten about that because it's the cool thing about those pre-published with that piece, not the cool, but one of the cool things is that it, you read it and it blows out a section of the hex on the map. Yeah. So you get this wonderful, cool kick-ass map with the book. You lay the sucker out. And like, wow, this is really cool. And it it just does this beautiful little zero in <clears throat> expansion of that area. And then the number of hexes around it. So, yeah, that is true. It doesn't just say, oh, here's a town. Straight out of this town is this is this dungeon. And, once you're, and that's it. By the way, the other 62 hexes around that, there's this, 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 or other shit. If you want to go ahead and make up your own, you've got some, again, as you said, seeds, you can play with that. So that makes sense. I've forgotten about that. That's a good piece. And, and the adventures when it comes down to like, one of the big things in the OSR and the DIY type is like the, like how usable is it at the table, right? Like I just sit down and run this. And I think I've done it with his adventures. I do think they benefit from, you know, a, just a quick read through. You don't have to memorize stuff. They're not like, it's not like trying to go through Tomb of Annihilation, right? And being like, there's no way you're ever going to read that and memorize anything. And it kind of could be overwhelming. Um, but even with the shorter ones that Jeff puts out, you don't have to memorize it. It does benefit from like you kind of getting an idea of how the adventure is supposed to flow. Um, but there are times I picked up a new one and be like, hey, we're sitting at the table. We're going to do this, you know, and let's just see. And I don't feel like I have to do a lot of flipping around. Do you um, find yourself running more one shots or campaigns with it? I mean, one of the things that for me, when I read it, I looked at it and like, this is campaignable. And my the reason that's a big thing for me is because if I come to the table with my home group and say, hey, I'm going to run a series of one shots, they'd be like, no, fuck off. They, they want to run a campaign. They want to start from like if it's a level system, I go level one through ten or something like that. They wanna they wanna campaign through it. Have you been able to successfully pull yeah, off the campaign? My, my campaigns, I mean, I haven't lasted years with this. We, we've like, I, I jump around playing different games all the time. Um, I think my longest running Hyperborea campaign was probably like six months to a year. Um, yeah, and we were, that was us playing every week. Um, I think they got to like fifth or sixth level. Um, and yeah, um, and I 
I do a lot of one shots too, though, because I run it like I do run it a lot of cons. Um, and there are, like, you can either try and like condense one of the adventure modules, write your own thing, or just pick a piece of an adventure module, you know, and run that in a con. Oh, so that brought up another question for me is when you're running at a con, do you, are you tending to get people who have never played it or people who are experienced? I mean, when you sit down at the table and you're going to run this at a con, are you tending to get people? Because I know you, you run it. Uh, you run a Gary Con. You run it uh, Gen Con too, don't you? No, Gen Con, I run all DCC, but I run it at uh, Total Con. I've run it at Game Hole, uh, Gen Con. I mean, I got Gary Con. Um, I get a mix. Like, there are some dudes who are like hardcore. Hyperborea players, some of the dudes who are actually, you know, either in Jeff's group or know Jeff pretty well. Um, and I get people who are very like, hey, I've seen this thing and I'm interested in it. You know, I want to play it. And that's actually one of the most rewarding things when Jeff will tell me, he's like, hey, man, I had some dude that was just like, you know, played in your game and he came up raving about it and he bought a book. You know, that's oh, pretty that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. That's a cool feeling. Yeah. Are people who um, I don't want to say, you know, well, well, you know, you have, don't have to be Tim DeShane to run this game, but <laughs> what I want to say is when you when the people who have run through it, I mean, they're having a damn good time with you and the players and so forth, but are they also, are they intrigued because Tim's a damn good GM and the players were awesome, or are they liking what they see from rules and mechanics and setting? Is that, or I'm, I'm wondering what they're telling you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure like someone who's not as of a uh, polished dungeon master as I am, Brett, would, no, I mean, I, I think <laughs> if you let the game do its thing, it, it kind of sells itself. Like you just have to kind of like let the game do it, what it's supposed to be. And let the, let the player characters shine and do their abilities. Um, and then, you know, they get to see what the game's about, but I don't have to do anything really super special. You know, I think as long as you're not like, you just have to be like, not a terrible, <laughs> like, <laughs> no, don't, don't be a terrible game. Don't master. be the dude that says no to everything. And is like reading from the module at the table, you know, type <laughs> stuff. One of the, one of the things that the reason I'm asking that is because I mean, this will get to my magic question here. In DCC, one of the things that um, I've talked to people who play DCC for years and have never had or dealt with the Flojitsen thing, where like, teenagers, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've never, and they've said, ah, fuck it, I, I don't even do that, I don't like that, or they've never experienced it, or they couldn't grok the rules or something. But one of the things that I found with DCC to help sell the system, you need to get in a fight because you got the critical charts and all that, that cool shit going on. But the other piece with it is the spells, because the spells in DCC, as Sean, I, and Jen Brinkman talked about ages back, there's, I mean, each spell has just tons of crazy effects and differences and so forth. Um, in this one, this is very, it's old school from a, the spells perspective. Do you find the spells um, from a definition? I mean, how do I say this? The BX spells I find are very tight. When I read the BX stuff, I'm like, that tells you exactly what it does. If you say, oh, it does X... It creates a cube of water. You're like, oh, it creates a cube of water. It doesn't necessarily say where. I can drop it on your head. I can do whatever. You can, it allows you for creativity. Um, do you find these spells are so prescriptive that it's almost that, uh, I'm going to get flack for this, but that, you know, it, it's so boxed in where it can only specifically do a thing? Or do you feel that this has enough room to it so that if somebody wants to be creative with their casting and do the oh i cast a cube of water it doesn't say it falls i cast it on the bad guy's head and there he's got to either get out of it or drowned or yeah you know, i mean i think that's in the spirit of the game like it's the the spell description or if you've if you've read and they're, and they're very similar like so sleep you know sleep in this is going to like no save you're going to go to sleep type things like so it's very old school um you know vancian style magic um but yeah i think i think there's more the game is designed for the game master to be able to run it the way they they want. There's nothing in it that's going to say you can't do that. 
you know. Because that's one of the things I actually love about OSR style games is the the kind of freedom to muck with stuff. Yeah, like creative, don't, yeah you, creative use of spells is way better than just using it as you think it's supposed to be used. Or yeah, yeah, you don't have um, you don't have a set prescribed. It only does this over this big, and you could you can do all sorts of crazier shit with it. So I like that. That's cool. Um, so let me think. Sean, you got any questions here? I do have a question between. I don't know if it's. Uh, I don't know if there's a huge nuance from the first edition to second edition. Tim, is there a lot? Of, no, was there a lot of change? Nope, there are new classes, and it just turned into like from two different volumes to one. And I think Jeff did it mostly because of shipping. It was easier to ship a, a one book type thing than a box set. Um, I do love my first edition stuff because it lays flat. It's like a nice spiral bound. I can only I can only bring the DM's guide type stuff, the referee's manual, if I want. Um, that was really cool. One of the that was my first experience with a spiral bound rule book. Yeah. I fucking love it. I sat on my desk. I'm reading. I'm like, oh my god, it just lays flat. This is wonderful. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's a couple of new character classes, but the rules are pretty much the rules, and it's just it's just formatting, layout, more art, um, stuff like that. I had I was talking to Corey and Dave Wynn, like my first Gary Con I went to. We were sitting having a beer later in the evening, and we were talking about they had one of the guys. I think it was Corey or Dave. Anyway, one of the two had played. A D, uh, astonishing stories. I'm like, oh, you guys love that. How'd it go? And he said, oh my God, we had to make characters at the table. It was so painful because half the players had never done it before. He said, like, so I think it was Dave. He's like, I knew what to do. Wham, wham, wham. He said that I helped half the rest of the table make characters. This feels like because one of the things the old school systems will tell you is that you can make a character like that, right? You can just whip one up and so on. Now, that said, I think you need to still know the rules if you don't know what you're doing it can be tricky but how how do you find character gen in this is it is it simple or because i've heard people bitch that 5e is super hard which i i find crazy but. i think with anything it's the options i think if you if you know what you want to play or you're being limited by the game master like maybe you're only playing the core four classes it's character creation is not very does not take very long um it's a little bit more in depth than BX because it has more of the ADD, AD&D style of like your race sh- and class. Well, like oh, your yeah, that and your strength like might give you a different bonus to hit as to damage. It's not just a, like a flat plus three if you have an eighteen, right? There's a couple of different things. Um, so I think like a, a, a straight up newbie might have a little like analysis paralysis, and it. it's not like doing a convention of like maybe you don't have all experienced players making characters at the table is probably not. <laughs> I've done it with Swords and Wizardry before, and it takes five minutes, you know. But like, I think it would take a little bit of time uh, in, in Astonishing Swordsman. Uh, but if you have a bunch of dudes who know what they want to play and they've played a lot, it's, it goes by quick. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I think you're right. It, you know, because I look at the classes, even with you look at different versions of human, like, oh, I want to be Atlantean, I want to be an Amazonian. Okay, cool. I'll be a ooh fighter, ooh subtype, ooh subtype, ooh subtype. And there's a lot. I think one of the cool things to your point when you said it's kind of has that second edition feel to it where it took the the extra different stuff from some of the uh, second edition splat books like hey here's different variations of fighter and it gives you those various subclasses and i've said this before even tonight but it's just they're tight in that they're each class as you said has those very class specific powers that are just for them yep which are which are really cool which gives you a chance to shine when you run into that thing no one else happens to have sleight of hand no one else happens to be able to pick locks. No one else happens to be able to have this barbarian thing or this necromancer thing. That's the thing they have and they alone. And that's that's pretty cool because, and for me anyway, yeah, I, I look at that and I'm like, wow, that will help me as a game master 
running a campaign or an adventure, because if I know who's going to be there, I'm like, oh, I can gear stuff if I feel like it. That's going to hit everybody's high high points pretty not easily, but it's going to give them all a chance because they know what they're bringing to the table because they've all got individual stuff. Yeah. And Jeff has a, a part in the book, too, that talks about, um, you know, if it's physically positive. It's something that's like there's nothing like going to actually stop you from trying to do something. But if it's in the purview of another character class, you should never really have more than like a one in six chance of doing it. So that way you're not kind of like stepping on the toes of, you know, so like you're maybe you're a dexterous dude but you're not the thief and it comes time to like open locks. That's really that that's the thief's job. But if you don't happen to have one or maybe you're trying to do it on your own, you know, they fail you're trying to, you're never going to have more than like that one in six chance to like really to do that thing. There's always that option. There's always a possibility, but yeah, you could pull it off, but it's kind of like, look, man, here's the deal. You try that. It's going to be only one in six as good as you can get. Okay. That's, that's a good point. I like that. So, yeah, I would say like one thing is like what I love about the game, too, is like I think I said, you know, during the show notes is it reminds me. First of all, I got into the game because of DCC. Um, Tim Callahan, who is one of the Goodman Games writers, was like, dude, you have to get this game. Um, and and I and I I, I saw the, the first edition art. Uh, Ian Bagley stuff is like really evocative. And it, it, just, it just drew me in. Um, so I played with Tim at Total Con in like 2015 or 16. And I was like, oh my God, I love this game. And I, I, had, I think I'd already bought it, but I wasn't really sure. Like, all right, let me like, try it out first. And it was like, from there on, I was sold. Um, and it's gone. And like, it's, it's like the, the community is very similar to how DCC started, like a very small, but like passionate, you know, friendly community. And the dudes that you talk to in the forums are pretty awesome. Um, you get a core and I'm like, I'm a Johnny completely. Like, I think I started, like I said, I think it had been out for like three years before I came on. So it's kind of funny, like I'm the dude here, but I'm very, the one thing I am is I'm very uh, energetic and enthusiastic about the games that I love. Um, mm-hmm. So I find myself sometimes being like the spokesman. Um, uh, <laughs> That's why we have you here, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I thought it would be because I'm so handsome, but I realize we're a podcast. And well, it's a, hey, we get bonus. It's a bonus. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sean's got a face for radio. That's why we just podcast. No, dude, he, like I'm, I'm a bald dude he's got a good set of hair right there that's a <laughs> um yeah so, so also it's, it's just like uh simple like i said if, you, if you're into dcc you gotta check this game out and uh, there's a lot of crossover too like if you're i think maybe there's a little less going the other way because if you're into hyperborea and like, because you're into old school dnd as well and then sometimes dcc could be like loosey go- too loosey goosey for people yeah i've heard that yeah and it's the same thing. Like uh, people ask me, like, well, how do you choose? And it's like, well, when I want to play like D and D, I pick Hyperborea. And when I want to play like, when I want to play DCC, you know, I, we play DCC. Yeah, yeah, it's got its own. I think Dungeon Crawl Classics really has its own its own thing. I don't find another game that way. Oh, that's like DCC. You know, what I mean, may, may, I mean, the closest thing I can think of is. Uh, is Dark Trails. <laughs> That's close, but it's still it's Beatty's still his own thing, but it's still DCC feels like DCC. And uh there's no way I would I when I read Astonishing Stars by Nico, oh, this is a DCC ripoff. Oh, it's a no, it, it it feels very unique. So from a just from a cost perspective, I think that's really cool. And Sean will have a link in the notes, but it's like it's 19 bucks for the complete second edition in PDF. Yeah. I mean that's that's not bad. Not bad at all. And I will say, I think I use my PDF more at the table than I do because I have the only second edition book I have is a really nice 
foil autograph numbered cover. Yep. Which number? Which number do you have? I don't even know. I have to. I gotta go look at it. Um, um, I'm number. I'm number seventy of one fifty. I was bringing that to like cons, which is insane. People are like, oh my god, you're bringing that? <laughs> Why are you doing? It's also like fifty pounds, so like bringing that. <laughs> like, um, so I use my PDF a lot. Like that's pretty much what I what I run the game out of. Uh, so yeah, for twenty bucks to steal, and he also has like lots of sales during the year where you can snag it for like ten bucks, five bucks sometimes. Um, it's well worth it. I think he's always at Gary Con. So if you're going to be at Gary Con, you can check him out there. He's always there. Northwind Adventures is the company that puts it out. We'll have a link in the show notes to the actual site. But if you go to Drive Through RPG and you check out Northwind Advent Northwind Adventures, you can see all the different stuff he's got out there and. Jeff runs a lot of really cool Kickstarters to get things going, but he has, there's a character name generator. You got the rule book. You got the, the player's manual um, is the $12 PDF out there. <clears throat> so when we talk about this massive, heavy duty tome, if you like, like Tim said, I use it. I like, I first read this. I bought it in PDF, the first edition version of it, just to see if I would like it before I get a hard copy. But you know, you can get a decent map out there for three bucks. The, the adventures, they're cheap as hell, in my opinion. I mean, Trinal Pit of the Sightless Serpent, that was what I was talking about. That's four bucks. Fane of the Forgotten Coiled Goddess, ten bucks. I mean, these are they're good adventures and they're pretty darn handy. So they're they're cool stuff. Yeah, for ten bucks you're gonna get like easy three or four sessions out of them for the most part. I put them on fast forward whenever I'm at the at conventions, but they're they're good little like mini campaigns. I think the other thing, the reason I when I first read the book I'm like, I, ha I want to get at least a couple adventures. And the reason I did was because I wanted to make sure that when I set up an adventure for myself, I understood kind of how Jeff was doing it. Uh, I guess I wanted to do it right. And I didn't want to find myself slipping and turning it into a regular, quote unquote, regular D&D game. I want to make sure I kind of stay true because I wanted to run it in the Hyperborea setting. I really wanted to do that. And I think one way to do that is kind of like the first time my buddies... And I played Greyhawk. We played Greyhawk Adventure stuff that was set in that setting where it uses your Infrundi. It has the right gods and the right everything. Nobody slipped and thought it was something else or, you know, made reference to something. It just, it really helped to contain. And by reading those adventures, they're, they really kind of get my, my brain locked into this is how a good Astonishing Swordsman adventure is set up. Even if I read one, I don't know, Jeff, I don't know if I like the flow. I might change this, which, I mean, we all do to stuff. But the the core, the feel of it is all right there. All the the right level of weirdness, the right um, cool options, all that stuff is all in all of those adventures. I think they're and, all really well done. And laser guns for Sean. Laser guns for Sean. <sighs> it's barrier peaks all day, baby. Oh, God. <laughs> Nonstop. <laughs> yeah. Um, Autonomous guns with laser arms. Sounds and chain great. Chain swords. I will. Uh, I will block that part out. <laughs> Tim, did I miss anything when we chatted through this, or did we hit all the points? No, I mean, they, they, this is something we could talk about forever. Um, but I think we hit like the majority. Like, if you're in someone that's really into like the weird tales literature, it's like right up your alley. Like, you're going to see things in the gazetteer that, are like, oh man, I know where this came from. You know, it's this is really cool. I'll tell you the other thing for for my money in the OSR space. This is one of the more original settings that's tightly tied into a rule set. Um, I like Swords and Wizardry. I like Osric. Um, I've seen Labyrinth Lord and so on and so forth. 
I think this is one of the best ones out there. Yeah, I agree. I really, I really do. It's it's the total package of all the cool stuff all wrapped in. Not only good tight rules, spells, mechanics, blah blah blah. That that stuff, the Gazetteer, the Monster Manual. It's all laid out right there. Man, in this space, I don't. Maybe I mean I'm sure somebody out there is going to absolutely freaking disagree with us here, but I think well, this I is think, the best I think one. one of the things that people like the first complaint you see is because and we brought that up earlier was the ascending armor class. Um, and one, it's not that hard. There is a matrix on the bottom of the character sheet. I mean, I I under, I learned Thacko when I was eleven, so it can't be that difficult. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I'm not a very smart person. <laughs> like I I am of average intelligence. You know, like that. I was an English major in college, <laughs> I, and I learned Thacko. Come on, kids. Yes, everybody can learn it. Yes, everybody can do it. The- but Sean, it's really easy. You can do the target twenty method. It's super easy. You just you take your die roll, you add all your modifiers in, you add your character's fighting ability and the enemy's armor class, and if it's over 20, you hit. See? Just simple addition. See, now that's a different method, though. That's like... I like that method. You know what I'm saying? It's not roll. No, here. Yeah. Um, but because of the fact that it has descending AC, it makes it so if you have a lot of classic adventures that you want to plug in, like I ran that one Gary Con, I ran two sessions of Before the Lost City, in Hyperborea and just I didn't have to do anything you know what I mean like it's it's hit dice and armor class and it matches up and it's just like hey we ran Velocity it was awesome you know that's one thing that does appeal to me about something like uh, ASSH is that maybe component because I doubt I would probably use the native setting as much because I'm just not I have never been a Howard fan, or I just have. Oh, if that's if that's on your stick, yeah. I get that. That's, that but, makes sense. You know, the classics do have a, you know, like the nostalgia piece does hit home on occasion, and there is times where I'm like, oh, I'm gonna bust out Pharaoh, or I'm gonna bust out, you know, the lizard, Tomb of the Lizard King, or whatever module, and I don't want to do a lot of conversion bullshit, and I don't. So something like this, where you're talking about Tim, it's really easy to convert because all the numbers are the same. But it's uh, maybe smoother because, Brett, you and I have talked about how AD&D rule-wise and, and reading it and, ungro- and grokking it is, I don't think, the, I, don't, I just don't think it's the best. Like, I no, if you want to learn first edition AD&D, you read Astonishing Swordsman or Osric. That will, that will teach you as closest to that core, in my opinion, <clears throat> as you can get. And... Um, Osric is okay. Osric is okay from a read, but from a raw entertainment perspective and feeling like you're being entertained and reading it, not even realizing how deep you are into this book, uh, Astonishing Swordsman carries carries that easily. Yeah. So I, I mean, so part of me is like, okay, great. You know, I'll pick it up and and use it for what it is for me personally, and then, which would be probably some of those older module one shot or. I mean, whether it's a campaign or not. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I see and appreciate that component of of the game that well, that's the the core pieces of it, the rules, the spells, and yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I get you. Yeah, yeah. No. I don't know. Cool, Maybe man. I'm, I'm not articulating myself very well. No, I get is, I get what you're saying. Which is, you know, why would I start after 270 episodes? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Like, what the hell you guys expect out there? God damn it. All right. No, that's All good. Right. Maybe I will pick it up. I don't have it. I don't own it yet. Yeah, pick up a PDF of it. The, I mean, and I mean, 
it's a couple bucks there and you buzz through it. If nothing else, um, next time we get a chance to get, get a crew together, if Swick or somebody's in town, I'll run it. Be a good opportunity. I, I need to I need to get the fucker to the table and run it because I've got I've got a shelf full of this awesome stuff and I have yet to use it. And I've been cleaning out game systems on my shelf for a while. I'm like, I'm never gonna run this. I'm never this is stupid. Why did I buy this? And this one is always in the keep pile. Cause I'm I, I love it. And I just I there's no way I'm getting rid of it. Well, I also signed up to run fewer games this year at GaryCon. Instead of doing like twenty four or thirty hours of games, I'm only I think I'm maybe running eight. Wow! So I, have plenty, I will have plenty of time off books to uh, run some Hyperborea for those who are interested. See, no, Sean. Maybe we'll get a we'll get a gaming and BS game going. There we go. We just got to get Sean to go. I would nice. be honored, dude. Just show up and we'll play in the lobby. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, we'll you might not the- have a freaking choice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Skip Williams, I feel your pain, buddy. But damn, <laughs> I want to play on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> hey, our open gaming area. It's out. See the lobby? Go through those doors. <laughs> out underneath the canopy, there's a parking yeah. lot. Oh, but watch out because the parking lot's too full, too. That's icy. <laughs> I rip on Gary Khan. Those guys are trying to do a bang up job, but they're they're having capacity. It's issues. a tough it's a tough gig, yeah, man. It's, it, it's hard being it's one of my favorite it is it's not my favorite con, I would say one of my favorite cons. And it a con that good's only going to draw more people and it just kind of it just sucks for those of us i mean i've only been to five now but i think about like you know jim sketch who's been to every single one or some of the other guys like that like they've seen their beloved small con turn into like this giant oh my god there's a thousand people here yeah (laughs) well you know and you know i don't know maybe they cap it which would be unfortunate but i think for experience wise or you gotta jack. Or, I mean, or there's you multiple jack ways up the prices. Price. Yeah, yeah, you can price people out. There's a lot of it's it's. There's no good. Where you find a different location? No, I don't know. No, Luke. Has, I don't know, man. Luke, I know Luke's pretty adamant to keep it in Lake Geneva. I heard that guy will just he he. He would rather cap it, I think, than yeah, than yeah. Anyways, oh well. Okay, go on for hours. Off we go. All right. Well. Uh, die roll? I think, well, die roll, you just kind of set them all, didn't you? Oh, yeah. So right. we got the we got links to the uh, PDF for Astonishing Swordsman Sorcerer of Hyperborea. We have links to the book out on uh, Noble Knight, if you're a Noble Knight shopper. And if you're not, why not? They, they have good deals. Hyperborea.tv, the official site, that's out there. And we also have a Clark Ashton Smith Amazon link out there for folks. Um, if you're into it, Clark Ashton Smith, there are a number of different collected audiobooks. And I picked up some of those because I haven't... I have an hour in an hour home drive, and I've listened to a bunch of them. Some of them, I'm like, oh my god, I can't stand. The- oh, the story was stupid. There's some really good stuff within and within that stuff, though. That's good. It's good stuff. Tim, you got anything you want to call out? Uh, just that my friend Joey, uh, Joey Royale, as he's known on the internet in the in the DCC community, he and I are putting out a zine for Zine Quest. Uh, it's called One of Us. It is for the Dungeon Crawl Classics role playing game system, where you are playing a troop of essentially carnies and circus folk in a post-apocalyptic dust bowl setting um in the in the in the 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 shit in the if you like carnival (laughs) actually this is all joey man joey was the one that wrote it i'm just kind of organizing everything for him um but if you like carnival in like kind of dark horror type stuff you know yeah there's total like don't get me wrong there's plenty of shit that freaks me out about carnivals and 
festivals and all that. <laughs> like, yeah, man. That I get it. Awesome. That's so where cool. is it? Do you have a link? Do you, do you want? Uh, I don't have the link yet because right. the Kickstarter page is not live. But uh, once, once I, you get once you get it, pass it to us, man, so we can yeah. share that around. We gotta get that up there for sure. Hey, we got some, I'm really excited because I got some really cool people doing art. You know, whether or not it sucks, it's gonna be pretty. Oh and, yeah, I mean, that's that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what when I got. I always I like uh, Matt Morrow did good stuff for my Avalon books. So I'm like ah, even if everyone thinks it's my ideas are stupid as hell they're like oh the art looks great <laughs> yeah that'll just be uh, that's all i need yeah i think i went good. a little overboard on the art budget for a zine but i was like i like my art is one of the number one things that draws me to games so i if i was gonna put something out i wanted to have you know art that i was gonna love and be proud of so i got some cool people doing art for us cool nothing wrong with that thinking sweet man yeah tim thanks for being on the show buddy man yeah, thank, thank you, you man. guys you know the once a year seeing you dudes and maybe not even once for sean since he's like be a you know a, a slacker but either way i love you dudes good to see you you too man i get this guy on the show and this is the grief i get i don't understand well we should have heard what we said all, before we started recording it was even worse yeah i have the face for grief i guess yeah that's true all right you're just too handsome oh pfft. all right well let's sign off for this sucker all right thanks for tim for being on the show thanks for people who have written in Thanks for listening. Check out the links in the show notes. And uh, this is Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night, good game and all. This episode of Gaming and BS brought to you with the help from the following BSers. Graham Miner, Corey Wynn, Hawk Sparrow, Aaron Ralia, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Curtis Takahashi, Joe Swick, Larry Haupt, Mark DeSaka, Pure Mongrel, Chris Steele, Ron Bishop, Thomas Hook, Wayne Humphrey, Craig, Brandon Barnes, Laramie Wall, Dan LaValle, Jason Hobbs, Sky, Old School DM, Perry Besor, Michael Dinos, Jim Fitzpatrick, Christopher Gray, Bruce Cunnington, John Kayward, Corey Gonzalez, Eileen Barnes, Robert Nemeth, Niall Diamond, Howard Bishop, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Salzwedo, The Closet Gamer, Jeff Goad, Aaron Coleman, Ray Otis, C.W. Mellencamp, Craig Huber, Rich Wishon, Old Scouser Roleplaying, Jared Rasher, Andy Hall, David F. Baylog, Harrigan, Melissa Bashinsky, Brian Rumble, Henry Newcomb, Eric Talvola, Hus Carl, Roger Brasslett, Mark Soam, Andy Olson, Eric Avia, Ron Blessing, Jeff Seifert, Ghost GM, Mike Hess Jr., Chad Glayman, Finolf, Josh Wallace, and Merkel Froelich. For ways to support the show, head over to gamingandbs.com forward slash support dash us. Thanks, BSers. This has been a Litterbox Studio production. production.